0: Jude, the letter to Jude, we're in our fourth message here in this series. And uh, how many people have done, uh, say, recently in the last few years, you've done some renovation on your home? Just anybody, you've done a renovation on your home. Um, and, and some, you know, during the pandemic, we were, I used the P word, I'm sorry, but some people during that time we went through, um, you know, you were looking for things to do. So you renovated uh, your homes. And Cheryl and I did that. Um, we've been living in our home for 17 years. And, you know, after a few years, uh, things need upgrading for us. It, it started with the really small things. It was it was like the taps in the kitchen were rotting, and it ended with us doing the, the stairway and the flooring all the way up to our bedroom. I don't know how that happens, but it 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 started with the kitchen taps, and it moved from there and cascaded through the house. So you just get to this place where that's necessary: cabinets and counters, fixtures and and flooring need to be replaced. But when you're doing that kind of thing, the structure of the house remains intact. The foundation is the same, the walls uh, stay uh, in place, but some demolition is necessary in order to build it back better than it was before. Deconstruction of what is not working and thoughtful reconstruction to make it better. And those are two very important words in this series. Uh, because that's been the thrust of what we've seen in the letter that Jude wrote. Uh, some professing Christians um, have a faith, and I'm talking to us now. Jude was writing into this situation, but we're thinking of it in terms of us. Um, professing Christians, some professing Christians have a faith that is weak, it's shaky, it's tired. They have a faith that's been built with poor building materials and, and, and faulty engineering and workmanship. And so these professing Christians will embark on a process of what has come to be known as deconstruction, a process of deconstructing their faith. For some, as we mentioned in the first message in this series, it's a sad process that leads all the way to atheism or or agnosticism at the very least. For others, deconstruction can be a very healthy process, resulting in a recentering on the gospel and a rebuilding of their faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That process, the healthy process, tears down and tears out unbiblical traditions and beliefs to get to the beautiful core of what we believe. And in in today's passage, Jude tells his readers, and this is the phrase he uses, to be building themselves up in their most holy faith, to be building themselves up He uses this metaphor of building, a metaphor that's very common in the scriptures. He uses it um, in order to describe the process of strengthening our faith, especially in the face of the pressure to deconstruct, to tear down, to even abandon our faith. And in the face of that, we're to be reconstructing our faith in a way that's strong. And we'll stand against the forces in this world. And so this message and this letter is exactly what we need at this time. Because the pressure is on many who hold the faith to deconstruct their faith. And after two hard messages, if you've been here every week and you've been taking in all of these messages along the way. You know that the last two weeks were tough, tough messages. Messages about the false teachers who were in the business of tearing down the faith. But now the good news is we kind of turn the page on that and we're turning a little bit more positively to the reconstruction, how to build ourselves up in our faith. So turn to the book of Jude. I'm going to read through these verses. It's verses 17 through 23, and then we'll start working through uh, the verses waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. All right, let's, let's look at Jude's basic premise, really for the whole letter. His basic premise is that ungodly people in the church will cause division. And there's three parts to that statement. There's ungodly people. They are in the church. So we're not talking about ungodly influences outside the church. We're talking about what's happening in here. Ungodly people in the church will cause division. Now, the way Jude sets this up in verse 17 is as a reminder, which reminds us that as Christians, we need these reminders because we are prone to forget some very basic things about the Christian life. And and the process of deconstruction begins at that point of forgetting what we have been taught, what has been given to us. We are prone to forget. And specifically here, we may be prone to forget that bad things happen inside of churches. In fact, believers, some believers, as well as non-believers outside of the church, especially those non-believers outside of the church who are prone to critique the church. do You have someone like that in your family that you know or someone at work, like they're an unbeliever, they're not a Christian, and they like to critique the church. They like to say, they like to point out all the things that are wrong with the church. So believers, as well as some non-believers, have this mistaken notion that the church is supposed to be filled with perfect Christians. That's the mistaken idea that they have. And the argument goes something like this. Maybe you've heard this. Because you say you believe such and such, you should be living that out perfectly. Now that's the same as saying a hospital should only be filled with healthy people or a school should only have people in it who know everything already. And obviously, a hospital is a place for sick people, not healthy people. A school is for people who are ignorant, who are learning, who who don't know things. That's why they're there. The church is actually a gathering of people. uh, It's a gathering of people who are messed up, who know they're messed up, and who have declared their need of a savior. Amen? That's the church. The church, in fact, is one part hospital. We're all sick. And one part school, there's a lot we don't know, and we bring that together with this need for healing and this need for knowledge, healing and knowledge. We need to be here. And by the way, God help the church that projects anything other than full dependence on the grace of God. God help the church that has this boastful sense that we have this all figured out and we're better than the world out there? Because that church tips over into legalism and pride. You know, Jesus' harshest words, if you're reading the gospel, his harshest words are always for the Pharisees, who were the conservative religious people of their day. If you're looking for someone in the gospel to identify with as a Bible-believing Christian, look first at the Pharisees. They believed what you believed. They went to, they went to, to worship all the time, and they lived very holy lives, and they were all about the word of God. Think about that. Jesus' harshest words were for that group of people, these religious conservatives who thought they were good with God on the basis of their own righteousness and religiosity. And one of the biggest problems with this, by the way, with respect to the topic we're looking at of deconstruction, we saw this in the first message. We started looking at some of the statistics of why people, some of the reasons why people were deconstructing in the younger generations, why were they leaving the church? Why were they abandoning the gospel? It's because they had looked at people who had professed Christ, but were not living up to the standard of, of, of the gospel, particularly their parents. And they said, you don't actually believe the thing that you're saying you're believing. You're like the Pharisees. What they saw was piety without Jesus. They saw religion without Transformation. They saw rules, but no actual relationship with Jesus. In fact, when you look at the Gospels and you think about how he was with the religious people, so harsh on, with them. But I mean, Jesus was like super nice to the Romans. He was always, he was always nice to, to Gentiles. Jesus was nicer to Romans than he was to the religious prima donnas who, who paraded their own holiness as a badge of honor. And so we, we, got, we gladly, here in this church, go all the way back to our, our series a number of years ago in the Gospel of Luke, and we learned this phrase from one of the commentators who, who called the church the mob of misfits. That's this church. It's a, it's a mob of misfits. If you don't like that, go to a different church, okay? We're a mob of misfits. We're going to put it on T-shirts. It's going to be our tagline. Harvest Bible Chapel, mob of misfits. That's us. You're not comfortable with that. This isn't the place for you. In the language of of the opening for the last month, we've had the same call to worship. Intentionally. We want to learn something. We are dust. Dust. This is a place for brokenness. It's a place for struggle. It's it's a place for striving with God. It's a a place, to, to use Jude's language, it's a place to contend for the faith, to fight for our faith, because the faith doesn't come easily. In fact, you know, we often think, you know, we, we think about going into our week and all the battles that we're going to have this week, the these spiritual battles that we're going to have. And, and, and we'll frame it up in terms of the, the three battlegrounds that, that we as Christians are constantly facing. I'm going to fight against my flesh this week. I'm going to fight against my own flesh to try not to sin. Or I'm going to, I'm going to fight against the, the influences of this world the world's going to try and trip me up, but I'm going to fight against the world. Or, or we might think more spiritually and, and, and the spiritual warfare that's going on. And we'll say, you know, I'm fighting against demons. I'm fighting against the evil influences that are behind all of this. And we think that's where we're fighting. We think that's our fight. And the reality is we are, we are more naturally inclined to our own flesh and feel comfortable there. We feel comfortable in this world and have no trouble giving into it. And we're more influenced by the the forces of darkness than we care to admit. Do you know where the real fight is this week? You know who you're really gonna fight this week? You know who you're gonna fight all week? You're gonna fight God. Because your natural tendency is toward the flesh, toward sin. The, the, The one you're striving against the thing you have to contend for is Jesus Christ and the faith. You're going you're to fight against the gospel this week in your flesh. You're going to be like the patriarch, patriarch Jacob who wrestled with God. And so that's us. That's who we are. The church in an honest moment, will admit that we are vulnerable, that bad things happen here, that there are ungodly people in our midst, that they are prone to cause division. And so Jude says to that, verse 17, remember, 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 and in, in this remembering is not just bring it to mind, but it's, it's bring it to mind with the intent that I'm going to do something with the inv- in information that I've been given. Remember, Think about it, do something. He calls them beloved. He has such affection for them in the midst of this. And he wants them to recall the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not a reference, even though it's in quotes in our Bibles, it's not a reference to any specific text that we have in the New or Old Testament. It was something that they were saying. It's it's something that all the preachers were preaching, that all the apostles had this as as a message that they were delivering. Namely, verse 18 that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, this isn't a a far in the distant future predictive prophecy about the end times. When he says the last times here, the last days, that refers to the whole church age. The last times, the last days started at the first advent of Jesus Christ. We've been living in them all of our lives. We've been living in the last days since the time of Christ being on earth. So this is for now. In the last time, right now, in the church age, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. All the preachers are preaching this, Jude says. And this is consistent with what we see in other parts of the scripture. In fact, here's what Jesus said. Let me give you a little sampling here. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. He says, beware. Again, these are not from outside. These are inside the church. They come to the church looking like church people in sheep's clothing. But inwardly are ravenous wolves coming only to destroy. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he said to them this in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, he picks up on the same language of Jesus, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then he wrote to Timothy, one of the young pastors he was mentoring. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I thought Jesus only said nice things. I thought the Bible only had nice things in it. Sometimes there's hard things that we need to hear. The Lord is calling out those who are inside the church, seeking to draw it away from the gospel. We should not be surprised by that. That's Jude's point. Don't be shocked by this. In fact, you might even be encouraged rather than discouraged by it because you know that Jesus predicted it. You know the apostles predicted it. You're seeing it happen. You should be comforted by the fact that Scripture is being fulfilled. In fact, it serves as a warning about what it's like to be in a gospel-centered church and seeking to live out the faith. If that's what you're going after, some people are going to oppose that. These scoffers in particular, who mock and, and ridicule what we believe and, and how we live our lives, they laugh at us, at our mission, and at our message to the world. And it is these, verse 19 says, it is these, and he means that in that derogatory way, that you people kind of way those people kind of way. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. We've already unpacked so much of the description of, of these false teachers in previous messages. They are characterized by ungodliness, by immoral living. They've embraced the values of this world and there is no Holy Spirit in them, Judas is saying. They are not saved. They are not Christians in any biblical sense of that. Even if they profess themselves to be, we're more enlightened Christians, or we're liberal Christians, or we're progressive Christians, it doesn't matter what they call themselves. They are devoid of the Spirit. They're not saved. Now, that's that's who they are. That's who they are, and we passed over a, a couple of words that, are, that tell us what they're doing. They cause divisions. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. A lot of us have been involved in churches that have gone through division. This church has gone through division. It's always painful. But I wonder if you've ever thought about how God feels about division. Like, I don't know how we feel about it. It's, it's hurtful. Those those who are causing division often think that they're um, doing a righteous thing. They think it's fabulous. They wreak havoc in the church. Those are vi- who are victims of division, though, hate it and mourn that it has to happen or that it happened in a church. But what does God think? I know how we feel about it, but what does God think about division? Well, again, here's a sampling of some verses. There's actually quite a few verses in the scripture that speak to this. But let's start with Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things. There are six things that the Lord hates. We don't often think about the things the Lord hates. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and notice one who sows discord among brothers. The Lord hates people who cause division. Got it? Got it? Okay, you're with me? I'm just reading the Bible, folks, so you better say got it. Now, Now, so so God hates that. What's the ideal for us? God hates division, so the ideal has to be that we stick together. And Paul actually laid out the ideal and goal in in Ephesians 4, 3, where he said that we should be eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. We should be eager for this. We should be eager to hold the church together, to not allow false doctrine to get in, to split people, to, 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 to tear them away from the gospel and away from the church. We, we should want this and eagerly pursue it. Work hard toward it. But that there will be situations that must be met directly and decisively. And Paul wrote in the, in, uh, to Titus, another young pastor he was mentoring, he said this, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. I mean, this is, this is the, like church boards don't need to write policies and procedures when you have something that's, that's clear. Hey, we have a person in the church. They're causing division. Let's go warn him. We go and warn him. Stop causing division. He does it again. Second time, stop causing division. He does it a third time. We're not going to go tell him again. We're going to have nothing to do with him. You, buddy, are out of the church. We don't really need to have a long meeting to figure out how to take care of this because Paul told Titus how to take care of it because God hates division. And as much as it might be on our heart to maintain the unity of of the spirit and the bond of peace, sometimes it's just not gonna play out that way because ungodly people in the church will cause division. No, I said that this message was, was going to be more positive. I did say that, right? Did, did, I, did I promise that up front? I did. That's all kind of like introduction. That gets us to the place now where the action point comes from us, the very positive action point for us. So what's the point? If, if ungodly people are in the church and going to cause division, we need to fight it. So fight it. We need to contend for the faith. And we're going to do that by building up our faith. Build up your faith this way. Here's how. For proactive, super positive, for proactive, self-focused means to build up my faith. And not self-focused in, in a selfish or self-centered way, but this is, this is like self-focused in the sense of if, if you're getting ready to go on a flight and they do the safety briefing and they said if, if, uh, if the need comes to deploy the oxygen masks, We want you to put your mask on first and then help people around you if they need it, correct? You always put your own mask on first. And so this is self-focused in the sense that we're gonna put our mask on first. We're gonna build up our uh, faith first. We're gonna be breathing deeply of the spirit ourselves before we help others. And so he says, verse 20, but you beloved, loved ones, contrasting them with the false teachers. But you, you're not like these false teachers, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. There's the, there's the metaphor. We're building up our faith. We're reconstructing. We'll be, first of all, praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. Every time we come to prayer in a message or I do a series on prayer, I feel like I say the exact same thing. I feel like I always say prayer is hard. The reason why I say that in every message on prayer is because prayer is hard. (laughs) Did you follow the logic on on that? Prayer, Prayer is hard. But we're exhorted here in verse 20 to be praying, pray, not just praying, but praying in the Holy Spirit. And, and you, might, you might think, okay, like, but we have a pastor who prays. It's great. We have a pastor here who prays. I've been a pastor uh, for 30 years. I've been with the Lord, um, saved for 44 years. You might think that I have this, this discipline um, working really well in my life. And the reality is, I'm telling you that prayer is hard because I find prayer to be hard after all these years of walking with Jesus and all these years of being in pastoral ministry. And I find it hard because I'm I'm more of a doer. And so to to think about, and I know for some people, prayer is not hard. I know for some people, they could spend three hours in prayer. I don't know how that's possible. I can spend three hours watching an NFL football game, no problem whatsoever. (laughs) That I can allocate the time for and be very focused. But to pray for any extended period of time, I find that very difficult. And just so I don't make myself sound like a complete chump, I also can spend three hours or longer, often much longer than that, reading commentaries and writing a sermon and studying for it and crafting it and preparing it to bring it here. It's not, I'm not, it's not just football. I can spend hours and hours doing other things as well that are good, wholesome, good spiritual things, not football. But, I, but I'm a doer. And so when, I, when I'm praying, because I'm that kind of a person, because I always have a bunch of projects on the go, a bunch of things I'm thinking about, I, I, I can also be thinking during prayer about those things rather than the fact that I'm praying. I often think of other things I should be doing While I'm praying, even though when I'm praying, I'm doing the most important thing I could ever do. I'm talking to the Father. I'm easily distracted. I lack focus. Anybody else like that here? Just confess with me, please. I don't want to be the only one. So, so, so I have to, I, because prayer is a priority and because I can't stand up here and tell you that prayer is hard and then not offer you something that I too have found some success in, because we all have to grow in this together and prayer is important and we're called upon here to, to, to pray in the spirit because this is what's going to help us rebuild our house, reconstruct it, build up our faith. So I, here's a couple of things I've done. I've used prayer guides. If you know the the Anglican book of common prayer, it's a beautiful prayer book or or, um, Valley of vision, which is a Puritan prayer book, which I've recommended before is a powerful, powerful prayers in the Valley of vision or a book called, um, um, I have it here, a diary of private prayer by Bailey. We have links for those last two uh, in um, the notes for you to track those down. And of course the word of God itself is a wonderful prayer book. You don't need to buy a different one. If you have this one, the Psalms are wonderful prayers, but you can pray any portion of scripture. You can pray uh, what we're uh, studying from Jude right now. You can turn that into a prayer and pray that back to the Lord. The Bible itself is a wonderful prayer book, but use the prayers of others to help you focus in prayer. And then uh, other techniques I use is, is is to have a prayer list so that I can stay focused and remember all the things I want to pray, pray through or, or, Um, A big thing that I've been doing for many, many, many years is to journal my prayers. I write them out because if it's just me trying to talk to the Lord, I find that my mind drifts. If I'm intentionally with pen in hand, I just have like a moleskin journal and I'm writing out my prayers, then that keeps me more focused. It slows me down. And, And by the way, there's no rush when you're talking to Jesus. You don't need to rush through anything. So if you have to write it down and just slow it down, that's beautiful anyway, just on its face. And so find some techniques that are going to work for you because to pray in the spirit means praying the will of God, which we learn in the word of God. To the extent that you grow in your knowledge of the word, you'll pray less self-centered prayers, more God-centered prayers. You'll grow in intimacy with him. And so as hard as prayer might be to practice as a spiritual discipline, it's absolutely necessary that we do whatever is necessary since this is about relationship building with the father who is the master builder. So that's the starting point. Pray pray in the spirit, be praying in the spirit. Here's a second one. You also build up your faith by keeping keeping everyone in God's love. Just wanna keep everybody in God's love. Verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. He's saying it corporately. Let's all keep ourselves in the love of God. And we think of love and what's the, what's the big symbol for love? What is the big symbol for love? What is it? A heart, a heart right. If you type in love in, in, in uh, the emoji thing, you'll get a whole variety of different kinds of hearts and different colored hearts for different occasions. It's the heart. We think about love. We think about the heart. But whenever you hear the word love in the Bible, I want you to not think about a heart, but I want you to think of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is the overarching expression of the love of God to us. The gospel is God's love expressed. And so when when Jude says here, keep yourselves in the love of God, this is largely an exhortation to reflect more deeply on the gospel of Jesus Christ since it is grounded in the love of God. It's, 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 It's the cross. We're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ the cross on which he died, a cruel, cruel instrument of torture and execution has become the most profound symbol of love. Not the heart, but the cross as a full expression of the gospel. John wrote this, the, the apostle John wrote this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You want to see the love of God? I'm going to show you that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Anytime we talk about this verse, we have to define propitiation because no one knows what that means. No one knows what that means in, in regular conversation in English today. And the reason why they don't translate it any better than this is because we haven't found a single English word that can express what we're talking about in the word propitiation. Essentially, it means substitutionary atonement. And you go, that's no help whatsoever. <laughs> Am I right? What it means is that, that, that God's Wrath over sin, God's wrath over sin was satisfied by the sacrifice of his perfect son on the cross. That your sin that that brought about the judgment of God, that judgment came off of you and was put on Christ. He is the substitution for us. He is the covering by his blood for us and our sins. And God's wrath was appeased. And in that, we see the love of God toward us. So practically, what does it mean to keep ourselves, to keep everyone in the love of God? This is him saying, get the gospel back at the center this is him saying, remind yourself of what God has done. And when you've reminded yourself, remind yourself again. Put the gospel at the center of everything in your life. Informing every decision of importance. And, and by importance, I mean, let the gospel be at the center of everything you watch on Netflix and YouTube. Let the gospel Be at the center of how you spend, how you invest your money. Let the gospel be at the center of your relationships. Let your best friendships be gospel-centered friendships. Let the gospel be at the center of your marriage. Let the gospel be at the center of your parenting. Let's keep everyone in God's love. Let's keep the gospel at the center of everyone's life. And by doing this, we're building up our faith. And then here's the third one that he mentions. Waiting for the day. We build up our faith by waiting for the day. We, We sang earlier the hymn of heaven and we sang about the day. And this, this, is, this is about our eschatological hope. This is about our end times hope. Jude says that building up our faith includes, verse 21, halfway through there, waiting for the mercy, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We've been shown the mercy of Christ. If you're a, if you're a believer, you've already been shown the mercy of Christ in part because we're still living down here. We have not yet fully realized everything that Christ has for us. And so we're waiting for that day when we'll see the full expression of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will lead to eternal life for us. And so we have this faith-filled, holy expectation of the return of our Savior to end all the nonsense. And it is nonsense. Sin is absolute nonsense that I cannot wait to be rid of. I mean, last week we gathered here and the word was open and we worshiped Jesus and we were fired up for another week of living for Jesus. And did any of us make it to Sunday night or Monday morning without sinning? Aren't you tired of it? I mean, I am. I'm exhausted by it. This is a holy expectation of the return of our Savior to end this nonsense, to end the nonsense of sin, to end the nonsense of of death. And all of the effects in our world and in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones of sin and death. We're all tired of it. I'm speaking for everyone. We can't wait for the day. And we essentially sang these words when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen? What a day. So we live our lives as believers in eager anticipation of that day. And to the extent that you regularly remind yourself of that day, then your faith is going to be built up. Because you're still going to face a lot of nonsense between now and that day coming. So when a loved one dies, and you're tempted to shake a fist at God or, or, or to question his goodness. How could you let this happen? You remind yourself and you say, I'm waiting for the day. I'm waiting for the day. When you're tapped out, out of strength, you have nothing left in you to fight sin and temptation. You say, I'm waiting for the day. When, when matters of injustice like, like racism or the exploitation of children strike once again, you say, I'm waiting for the day. I'm waiting for the day. We're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ because until then, nothing, nothing gets rightly and eternally and perfectly fixed. And so with all of that in mind, those, those three aspects of what it means to build up our faith, we now turn our attention to others who need help along the way. People we might even be sitting around right now. You see, we've, with these three things, we've put our oxygen mask on and now we're looking around just to see if anyone else needs help with theirs. And so we should be showing compassion to those who are struggling. That's what we see in verse 22. Showing compassion to those who are struggling. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. It's a beautiful picture in, in John 20 of Thomas finally believing in Jesus. Where Jesus gently guides Thomas through his doubts to see that he was Indeed, resurrected from the dead. And it's a shocking moment because all the other disciples, the other 10 have already believed. They've already believed in the resurrected Christ. The women have believed, and there's so much joy and excitement around the resurrected Christ. And Thomas has really the audacity to come into that group of people that he's been walking with for three years to come to that group and say, unless I actually see him, unless I see the wounds and put my fingers in them, I'm not going to believe. Jesus could be forgiven for being impatient with that or angry with his intransigence, with his doubting. But instead, as Jesus encounters Thomas, it's a moment of, of compassion rather than condemnation for having uncertainties. And Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, Thomas, put your fingers right here and feel the wounds. Thomas, give me your hand and step over here and and put it in my side and see where the sword went in. He meets him at the point of his doubts and his questions and his uncertainties, and he gently leads him to a place of belief. And he says to him in John 20, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, there are people right now in this room, sitting here listening to me, and you're in the place of Thomas, and you have questions and doubts and uncertainties about all of this. There are Uh, those who are watching on the live stream and those who are watching on demand and you have doubts and uncertainties about all of this as well. There are people who have already, maybe even have been calling themselves a Christian or have some profession of faith in their past who are already putting distance between themselves and the church, themselves and God, but who simply need someone to come alongside them as Jesus did with Thomas to gently walk with them through their uncertainties and their questions. Someone who would just show them a little mercy to help them work through their doubts. Someone to stick with them through the struggle, to tell them it's okay to have these questions rather than making them feel terrible about them or, or, or tell them why, ask them why their faith isn't stronger. Some, in fact, have gone a long way already into their deconstruction. Jude goes on to say in verse 23... Save others. These are people who are deep into it, who have listened to the false teaching and have been pulled away. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. They're in the fire. They're on the path to an eternity without God. Snatch them out. To others show mercy with fear. He says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, hate the sin, hate the false teaching that's taken them there. When firefighters go into a building to make a rescue, they do so with the right gear on. They do it with safeguards in place. They do it having been rigorously trained and having assessed the situation that's right in front of them, perhaps a situation that that meets with some of the examples that they've run through in their minds and in their training. Jude's not imploring us to throw ourselves into these situations without having first built up our own faith, without first having shored up what we believe, to feel confident to go in and walk with somebody through this, to rescue them from the flames, to help those who are well on their way to deconstructing and to gently, lovingly care for them and bring them back. Are you showing compassion to those who are struggling? Ask yourself, in what way am I personally embarking on on this rescue mission? Do I know what to do? Have have I trained myself to do this? Am I engaged in it? Am, Am I willing to go into the flames and snatch somebody out of the fire? Am I ready for that? Am I, am I, for example, am I teaching kids? I, am I investing my life in teaching children? It, it might be your own children. It might, it might be your grandchildren, but are you showing them the gospel? Are you living out the gospel in front of these children that God has given to you? Are you teaching them the gospel? Are you involved? There are many people in this room involved in Harvest Kids and, and who, who are at a one on Wednesday nights and have helped with day camp in the past. And you're investing in children to teach them the gospel from an early age. How about our youth? Are you, are you, are you part of teaching teens, of, of leading a group of teens in, 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 in Harvest Youth? They're hearing the false teaching every day in their schools. And if they're not in a school where that's being taught, I'm telling you, you gave them a phone and they have it in their hands. They're hearing all the anti gospel talk. They're hearing all the message, uh, messages of this world and all the false teaching that would lead them to believe that they could still be a good Christian and live life any way they please. Who's going to snatch them out of the fire? Who's going to help them build their faith? To you? Is my home open for ministry? Are you willing to have 10 or 12 people in your home to have a small group? It's a small thing simply to open up your home so a leader can come in and and build a small group. Are you showing hospitality as an evidence of the gospel in your life? Are you telling your story to other people? When was the last time you told anyone the gospel or how the gospel transformed you or what God is doing in your life right now? Rehearsing the stories is so important. Am I praying for those who are struggling with all of this? Am I telling them that I'm praying for them? Am I practically serving them, showing them the love of God? Am I, am I sacrificing financially to support the work of this church which which our, our mission stated a different way, the way Jude says it here. Our mission is to save people by snatching them from the fire. That's why we exist. We're making disciples, making new disciples and making better disciples of Jesus. That's the whole mission. So are you helping us with that through sacrificial giving so we can do that as well as we're doing it now and even better than we're doing it now. We could launch more campuses and send more people out and start more ministries, and partner with more planters and servants of Christ? Am I greeting people warmly when they come through the doors on Sundays, when they sit beside me? Am I cultivating an atmosphere of love and hospitality? Am I committed to what we're seeking to do and to be as a church? Build up your faith. And having done so, show compassion to those who are struggling. Ungodly people are going to cause divisions. It's always going to be a fight. We're going to have to contend for the faith until the day we see Jesus. And so build up your faith. Make sure you're on this. And rescue those who are struggling with theirs. That's the call. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you are uh, so kind uh, to speak to us as you have. Uh, The warning is clear. Uh, The injunctions are clear. The path is clear from what we've seen here today. And I pray, God, that we would be um, sensitive, Father, as, as believers to those around us who are struggling. And I pray, God, that you would help us in every way Uh, throughout this next week. uh, Father, to be building up our faith, help us to grow in our uh, life of prayer. Help us to, Father, grow in showing compassion to others. Father, help us to be reminded every day about the reality of eternity. Father, we want these things to be true of us. We want the gospel. We want to be kept in the love of Christ. and and have the gospel at the very center of everything in our lives. So God, help us with that. Where there needs to be repentance, I pray that we would repent. Father, that we would invite your Holy Spirit to fill us, to strengthen us for what's ahead of us. And God, I pray for those who are struggling, those who are in the process of tearing things out. Father, and I pray that all those traditions and all those false beliefs that are unhelpful would indeed be torn out but that, Father, every person who's deconstructing right now would be brought back to the gospel, to put that at the center, Christ as the foundation, and would build that house to the glory of God and to the blessing that they would receive in their own life. So, Father, thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for receiving our worship today. Thank you for speaking to us in your word. Bless our fellowship, our time together, we pray in Christ's name.